Hey world, Dr. Scott Sigmund here. Today's episode of the Ortho Show podcast is going to be sponsored by OrthoLaser Orthopedic Laser Centers. I am absolutely convinced that the effects of this pandemic are going to linger for months, if not years. The way in which we deliver medical care is going to be changed forever. We have no idea when the operating rooms are open. There's going to be a long line for elective surgery. And when they do reopen, we're not even sure if we're going to be at full capacity. Basically, there's going to be a huge backlog of elective joint replacement for the elderly. There's also going to be many young patients that are going to say, you know, I just can't do surgery right now, doc. I need to get back into the workforce. I need to earn some money. I need to provide for my family. So basically, we're going to have to be forced as, as docs to find alternative treatment options for our patients for acute and chronic pain. OrthoLaser, orthopedic laser centers powered by MLS M8 laser technology is going to be that solution. Uh, the FDA cleared MLS M8 laser treatments are painless and only take about 10 minutes. So here's the deal, everybody. Our ortho laser centers are currently open in Boston, Newburgh, New York, Lexington, Kentucky, Pensacola, Florida, and soon to be opening in Atlanta, Hartford, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. These franchise opportunities are available at this time all across the country. So whether you're an interested patient or a doctor who wants to know more, please visit www.ortholaserwithaz.com. Again, www.ortholaserwithaz.com to learn more. For medical media, this is The Ortho Show. Okay, here we are again. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon, here to host another episode of the Ortho Show podcast. We have a great uh, guest today who is sort of inspirational in his ideas of, of innovation and trying new things. We have Dr. Gregory DeFelice, who is uh, another Jersey boy. We seem to have a lot of Jersey boys on the show lately. Uh, he's a uh, uh, football player from Princeton. I think uh, three or four years that you played there, and you're an orthopedic surgeon now at Hospital for Special Surgery in Cornell. I guess there's some rugby in you too, but uh, really nice to have you here, Greg. We really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, to come on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. So, um, you know, it's fascinating. I think that, uh, you know, I'm in the innovation space myself and, and for everyone out there, uh, Dr. Police is, you know, I, I like to call myself the healer of knees and shoulders left and right. So I'm going to give you a tagline now, Greg, that I think you should be using from now on, which is you are the repairer of ACLs. All right. <laughs> How's that sound? That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, we like it. So for, for our listeners out there, when you or a loved one or a family member undergoes ACL surgery here in the United States, as a general rule, you're getting an ACL reconstruction. We take out the old ACL and then we use something to make a new one. And so Dr. DeFelice has become uh, quite famous for his uh, thought process and technique for ACL repair. And I think it's a really great saga and great story, not so much just because of what you're doing, but just the idea of trying something new and trying to then sort of give information to people and see if they uh, are willing to change. So, so why don't you just tell us, you know, why? why? Why did you decide at one point that you wanted to do ACL repair rather than reconstruction? You know, I've thought about that quite a bit, and uh, it wasn't until after years and years of doing ACL repairs that I actually put my thoughts together and looked back and asked myself that very question as to why. 
um, because I was trained at special surgery. I was trained by some giants in the field, you know, Dr. Warren, Dr. Wickowitz, Dr. Alchek, and the, and the list goes on that uh, were, will go down in history as uh, some of the thought leaders in sports medicine surgery. And so when I came out to practice, I had uh, the way of doing it in my mind, you know, a patella tendon ACL was the way to go. And um, the difference uh, that I found was when I first came out to practice, I took my first job was uh, as the chief of sports and joints up at a big city hospital in the Bronx called Jacoby. And so really that was immediately where I found myself outside the box and had to start thinking outside the box. And I say to people all the time, you really don't think outside the box until you find yourself outside the box. And what I mean by that is uh, it was really a, a trauma-heavy sports practice where I wasn't seeing your typical uh, patients who were injured on the soccer field or playing football, but uh, I could just as easily be seeing someone who was hit uh, by a car and had a three-ligament knee. Um, and these patients, because of their socioeconomic status, didn't have all of the advantages that others do. And I found that when you applied the standard rules of surgery, uh, if this is torn, then do a reconstruction, uh, that the patients weren't doing as well. And it wasn't really because of the surgery, it was because of all the other social determinants of health that made it so they couldn't get to therapy, they couldn't, they didn't quite understand what was going on. And that led me to start thinking kind of outside of the, the norm so, so basically, you're, you're you're treating these these kids or these these patients that have issues. Um, you're trying to do standard care for them. You know, they can't get the physical therapy. They're not wearing their brace, or it becomes difficult for them to go through the routine post-operative rehab that we all anticipate that our patients will do. And so, therefore, maybe there's an alternative way to do the surgery, which would help to sort of minimize the need for for that therapy. Am I on on the, on a path here? Yeah, absolutely. You know. Uh... When I was training, uh, Dr. Warren used to, to uh, show me that occasionally the PCL would pull right off the bone and that you could stitch it back. Um, and it was really a confluence of a lot of things. It was me with my training being in that environment, but it was also at the same time that the arthroscopic rotator cuff instrumentation was really coming on strong. Before that, as you remember, we were doing open cuffs and then mini open cuffs. And it was only around in the middle of 2005 that we got towards all arthroscopic cuffs. And in the beginning, the instrumentation was very difficult. You couldn't take a stitch and, and bite it uh, and retrieve the stitch without opening the shoulder. So when those instruments came out, it allowed me to reach into the knee and stitch the ACL. And I used to joke and I, with the residents, I'd say, just close one eye and turn your head and it looks like a rotator cuff. So if it's long enough, just put the stitches in and anchor it back to the wall and we can see if it heals. And because the surgery was so much less morbid to the patient, they recovered much faster and, the, and it, everything became easier. So that's fascinating. So let's, I want all the listeners to understand what we're talking about here. So, so you basically, you tear your ACL. It's not, it's, it's sort of pulled off the bone, but it's just sort of sitting there. And, and what you're doing is putting sutures in basically using like arthroscopic rotator cuff repair instruments, and then using an anchor that you would have used for rotator cuff to reattach this. And so I know that ACL repair, you know, back to 1900, I think was the first ACL repair. And I think Greg, you make an argument 
that the reason that ACL repair may not have done very well early on was because there wasn't really good instrumentation to be able to do that. So now 2005 comes, you're a surgeon, you're doing knees and shoulders, and you recognize that maybe we can do stuff from the shoulder, move it to the knee and do this operation. So that's really pretty amazing, right? I mean, that's, it sounds like, you know, you went into the basement, you came up with an idea and then you started doing it. Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting. Uh, it's not exactly like that. It's it's pretty close, but it wasn't just because the instrumentation. It, they actually tried to repair the ACL, as you know, back in the 70s and 80s. But really, at that time, they didn't have a full understanding of of how to get this thing to heal. And so they would do a 10 inch incision, open the knee up, spend three hours trying to stitch it back together. And the surgery was 10 times worse than the injury. And even worse than that, they would put them in a cast at 20 degrees for two months. And uh, the patients had a miserable time recovering. And about 40 or 50% of them failed. Now, only in hindsight do we know that the reason they probably failed was because they were trying to stitch together all of the different tears. And I use the analogy of a horse's tail. And I always use this for my patients, and they understand it perfectly. I said, if, if you take a horse's tail and you cut it in the middle and I hand you the bottom half of the tail, and I say, stitch this back together, you're going to look at me like I'm crazy, because everyone knows that you can't stitch a horse's tail back together. But if you take a horse's tail, and you cut it off of his bum, and I hand you the entire tail that's one piece, you might, you would think that maybe I have a chance at pitting the tail back on the donkey. I know it's kind of a laughable analogy, but it really is accurate, and it helps people to understand what we're trying to do. Some ACL tears are repairable, and other ones aren't. And yeah. so that's what it comes down to is in the old days, the thinking went extinct because everyone looked at the results and said 50% failed. And and then they said, this doesn't work. And they abandoned it. And then for 35 years, we've been concentrating on reconstruction. Yeah, and we've been tweaking reconstruction here and there. We're doing the patellograph. We're doing the quad tenograph. But, you know, again, we talked earlier, you know, sooner or later, everything that's old is new again, right? And so, you know, sort of taking these concepts and, and bringing them forwards, I think your your point is very important, and that is indications. You have to make sure that you have the appropriate indications to try and improve your outcomes uh, as well. So we could talk a little bit you know, more about that later. I think you know, one of the major innovations that we, we saw in ACL rehab was with uh, Donald Shelbourne at Indianapolis in the 80s, right? When he found that all of the, the kids that weren't listening to him and were going faster did better than the ones were holding back, as you were talking about with casts and things like that. And it seems to me like with an ACL repair, you know, your concepts when you were, you were in the Bronx and you're trying to come up with a better operation for these, for these patients is, you know, it seems to me like you can accelerate, you know, their movement and range. They're not having pain from a graft donor site. I mean, how did these patients do clinically early on in the process? Well, Scott, that's what really kept me going. All right. You know, as well as I do as a surgeon, that if your patients aren't doing well, it doesn't take that many surgeries before you start questioning whether you want to keep doing that surgery. And what I found was that the patients who had the repairs were doing much, much better than the patients who had the reconstructions for all the reasons you just mentioned. You don't have to take a graft. You don't have to drill holes. It's more analogous to a simple knee arthroscopy than it is to an ACL reconstruction. And so uh, many of my patients would 
do exactly what you're saying. Kick the brace off, show up in the cl- in the clinic walking. I had one guy early on come in at six weeks out and told me he just ran three miles in the park. Uh, and I was, I was shocked and, uh, but yet his, his, the knees were doing fine. And so, uh, my patients really taught me that, uh, this is okay. You know, when you do a smaller surgery, you don't get, uh, all of that atrophy in the thigh, you don't get the, in, and when you save the ligament, you keep the proprioception in the knee. So these patients come out of the surgery and they feel pretty normal. Um, you know, you're an opioid sparing guy. And what I've found is that at least a third of my patients uh, who have ACL primary repair surgery take zero opioids postoperatively. And that's without any uh, long acting blocks or anything like that. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, you know, you're right. I mean, that's my gig. And so that's awesome to be able to hear, uh, you know, pain reduction is a major player here. So you can be opioid free, you can undergo an ACL repair and be opioid free. Now you can add a couple more tricks. And then maybe now everybody is too. So and we've talked about that as well. But I think that I, I think for our orthopedic surgeon listeners out there, I know I, I can see some of my, my friends and colleagues saying, well, they're going to do too much too fast and, and they're, they're going to then blow this out. So talk to us about how you find the balance of, of managing these patients to get them through the rehab. We certainly don't want them out on a football field at three months, do we? So walk us through. Oh, that. No, absolutely not. Um, and, and I agree, you know, some of the, some of this is trying to hold people back a little bit so they don't uh, do, do stupid things. Uh, one of the big things that kept me uh, grounded during all of this is that, uh, now I've done over 300 ACL repairs, and uh, I have only two patients who failed at three months, despite all of the people doing kind of crazy stuff. And one of them was drunk and fell off a picnic table. Um, so you can't stop people from doing some things. Uh, I don't. Uh, I use a, a physical therapy uh, protocol that um, is really uh, milestone based. It's not timeline based. And so what we found is if if people pop right up after the surgery and they have minimal pain with good control of their leg, we'll just let them walk on it and immediately go for full range motion. And what we found is people uh, people kind of know their limits because they can sense their knee. Um, I don't let anyone start to run before six weeks, but uh, quite a number of the people who've had the surgery are walking around uh, as if they didn't have surgery by two weeks. And so it's a much less onerous recovery than it is at when you're uh, doing a reconstruction. Yeah, that's great. We just had Tim Hewitt on, uh, and uh, obviously, as the a major proponent of biomechanics, uh, he's all about milestones as well. And I think more and more of us have moved away from a timeline more to a milestone uh, process. And I think that's really sound advice. I think that... Um, uh, you know, it'll be interesting as, as, as we go forwards with this, it seems that there's more and more surgeons now across the country that are starting to gain acceptance. When did you do your first ACL repair? Uh, 2008. So two that, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say 2008. Uh, I, at, at that time I had a very broad practice. I, uh, was doing total joint replacements, trauma and sports knee and shoulder. And so uh, I didn't do that many ACLs in my practice. Uh, So to try and find one who had the perfect tear took me some time. And it took me five years to collect my first 20 patients. 
you know, first of all, I was I was nervous about, uh, you know, whether I was going to do anybody any harm. And so when I found the patient, I'd have a long discussion about uh, my theory and whether or not uh, they would be a good candidate and what the downside risks were. The first patient was uh, a gentleman who was 42. He was the CEO of a company. He had four kids who were young, busy, busy life, and he was a triathlete. Um, he was sent to me by his friend who was an orthopedic surgeon who didn't want to operate on a close friend, which was pretty reasonable. And I saw him and noticed that he had a nice proximal tear right off the bone. And I explained to him about my approach. And uh, within minutes, he said, Doc, go for it. I love the way you think. And I said, oh, my gosh, like, this is crazy. I, you don't need any more buy-in. He said he rolled up his other pant leg and he showed me a 10-inch railroad tracks down his other knee from when he was 20 and he had dislocated his knee. And he said, Doc, I've been through this. I like the way you think. And uh, within a couple of weeks, he was uh, full range of motion, walking around like nothing happened. He was skiing in three months and now he's 12 years out and uh, he's been in insanely active ever since. Yeah, I'm, I've experienced that myself before. I was asked to, to be an early adopter of uh, the Regenitin implant and I recall uh, operating on a patient and doing, he was a workers' comp patient, was a revision rotator cuff, he was a smoker, you know, and I did all of these things. And three months later, he came back and he lifted his arm up over his head and he was pain free and asked to go back to work. And I, I remember vividly saying to myself, I've never seen this before in clinical practice. And that sounds exactly like what you experienced with this patient as well. A new technique, you find, you get somebody to jump on board and do it. You're thinking, is this going to work or not work? And then you look at the results and you take a bet and you're like, oh, my God. Yeah. Just happened? So it took me five years to collect my first 20 patients. When I got up to about 11 patients or so, I realized like, oh, my gosh, I'm onto something here. I think this could change the world. And uh, I was never a big research guy, to be honest with you. I, you know, you, each of us has our different strengths and clinical side is my was always my strength. And I wasn't a, a guy who really enjoyed doing research. Um but I said, you know what? I have to write this up. And so uh, I, I got together with a, a resident, et cetera, and we started to write it up. And that's where the first big roadblock came. <laughs> because when I sent the paper in, uh, ACL, you know, modern ACL repair results, it got rejected for two years, just <laughs> thrown back to me. It was, my inbox was full quicker than my outbox was going. <laughs> I love so, it. It took me two years and endless revisions to uh, to get that uh, paper published. And at the end of it, I think it was a favor from one of the publishers uh, to help me out. And then, then we're off to the races. You know, and that's a common story, a common theme across, you know, depending on who you talk to, especially for those those innovators and early adopters who are really trying to push the curve. You, you, you get set up and it's a real strength of character that you're in this vulnerable spot where you're really trying to change something. You really think that you are onto something and you can make a difference and you get rejected. And then yet you persevere and you continue on. And it's a great, it's a common theme that's, you know, sort of Brene Brown is a, is a big believer in the sort of vulnerability, finding courage and moving forward. So congratulations to you for persevering to, to, to make that happen. So now you know, let, let's play it forwards now. It seems like every journal I'm picking up now, there's an article about ACL repair. I mean, it's a pretty profound. Yeah. So I, um, I have another talk later on tonight. And uh, part of the talk is that um, if, if people aren't talking about what you're doing, then it can't be very interesting, right? And so this year, in the past 12 months, there's been eight systematic reviews on ACL primary repair. 
So if that's any indication, I guess people are uh, getting pretty interested in it. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So I'm just sort of thinking out loud now. I mean, you know, with a repair, you know, we're really thinking biologics, right? And so have you been approached or have you thought about adding orthobiologics to the process of the ACL repair, PRP, BMAC, et cetera? What are you doing with that? Yeah, you know... I have people have asked me that uh, quite a bit, and I've been a little resistant to do that because um, I, I use vented swivel lock anchors in the femur, and therefore all of those uh, good humors are coming out of the bone already. So by doing a small notch plasty and venting the anchors, I get all the BMAC, uh, which allows me to get that extra healing potential to begin with. So I haven't really uh, done any. Uh, studies looking at the additive benefit of PRP or whatnot. And what do you think about proprioception? Because that's one of the other things that a lot of people feel that ACL reconstructions patients don't do well, because you remove the nerve within the ACL. They don't have the ability to, to, to have, you know, sensation of where the knee is in space. Do you think, um, obviously there's probably a, a future study that needs to be done, but do you think there's some potential that repairing the ACL maintains that, those proprioceptive nerves? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know what? We just we just published an article in arthroscopy uh, about what's called the forgotten joint score. And not a, not a lot of us sports medicine surgeons have ever heard of the forgotten joint score. It's called the FJS12. And uh, it was originally designed to compare the outcomes of unis versus totals and show that the uni patients felt better because you were keeping the cruciates, et cetera. And in fact, it did show that. And it just so happened that my research assistant knew about the score and suggested that we started to collect the data. And we just published a paper showing that the the primary repair patients score just shy of a person who's never had surgery. And then the reconstruction patients score a good 10 points below that. And that and you know as a clinician as well as I do that. ACL reconstruction patients will come back and say, yeah, my knee feels stable. I'm able to play, but it doesn't feel normal. It doesn't feel like my other knee. And, uh, and you know as well as I do that failures in ACL reconstruction aren't just isolated to tearing that graft, but many, many patients tear the opposite knee. And lots of us conjecture that it's because they can't feel the operative knee as well as they should. Yeah. In my in my clinic, I, uh, I've noticed over the years, and this paper kind of proved it, that my ACL patients come back and, and a lot of times they tell me that their knee feels completely normal and sometimes they forget which knee was operated on, which is pretty rare to hear from a patient who's had a reconstruction. So 2005, you know, you, you took a long time to gather up your first 10 patients, but now, you know, forget about the pandemic, but in 2020, I mean, you you got people flying in for from all over to do this thing now, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I sure do. So uh, my practice has been taken over by ACLs. Um, a lot of the other stuff has fallen by the wayside um, because more and more and more people are hearing about this technique, and more and more people have someone in their life who's had an ACL reconstruction who's not happy. And so they, the patients are the ones who, who want to try something new. And to be honest, I think that, um, look, ACL repair is, is simply a tool in our toolbox, right? It's, it's one way that we can use, and we should have 100 tools in our toolbox that specifically um, 
address the person's problem. Now, if it's a young cutting athlete, maybe it's not enough. Maybe you add a little graft to it. Sometimes I'll repair it and do an augment. That's kind of like the medium procedure I talk about. And then, uh, but if you're a 35-year-old, you may say, even if it's not a perfect tear, it pro- might be worth a try. Uh, because the the one nice thing about the ACL repair is that if it goes bad and it doesn't work out and they re-injure themselves, if you go back and do a reconstruction, it's kind of like doing it the first time. You don't have to deal with screws and, and, and tunnels and graphs. You just go in and do – it's like a primary ACL uh, reconstruction. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome stuff, Greg. You know, as a – as a fellow innovator who's swimming upstream with laser right now, we're trying to make a difference there. I, I really want to commend you, you know, for having the courage to persevere, especially uh, when you got rejection as much as you did early on in the process. And uh, so we commend you for all the efforts you've done to sort of get where we are here. And uh, I'm confident that ACL Repair uh, is here to stay and sort of going to be a, another arrow in our quiver as we move forward. So really can't thank you enough for being on the show. Uh, this is Dr. Scott Sigmund host of the ortho show hashtag follow the fro till next time.